This is It Was a Thing on TV. Spoiler number one is Dr. Lee Franz. It stinks. What is going on? <laughs> what is going on? Episode 77, Submission 379. The WTF Stories of Unsolved Mysteries. This is going to be a very, very uh, historic departure for this show because we're actually covering a show that technically is still on the air. Because last week, Netflix dropped season 15 of the show, and uh, frankly, it's awesome. I like it. It is, And if you are a big true crime fan, that's going to be your jam. That's basically uh, Unsolved Mysteries sexed up. Unfortunately, the only appearance from Robert Stack is a photographic still in the opening. Thanks, Duffer Brothers. Yeah, because obviously it's it's very hard to replace somebody as iconic associated with one show like Robert Stack was. Yeah, just ask Dennis Farina. Who did okay, the- I was just going to say, Peter Gallery has a question. Did they say anything about Dennis Farina? No. Okay, not surprising. Good. Although he was okay too, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) When we think of unsolved mysteries back in the day, in our younger days, we associate the show with some of the weirdest stuff you'll ever find. Of course, you had your murders, you had your true crime stuff, and... You had your reunited lost loves. Yeah, those were heart. They were touching. But the real reason we watched Unsolved Mysteries was the out there, what the hell is this stories? Yep. These were your mysteries of the unknown from Time Life Books material. And we're going to cover four of them each on this episode. And we've taken a look at what we've all had to cover. And uh, all I can say is, what the ever-loving beep beep. So, hey, Mike, why don't you start us off? Okay. To start off this episode, I want to bring up the story of one D. Klepper. In the fall of 1977... Uh, D. Clipper's mother, Cece, uh, was driving to a friend's house with uh, her daughter, D. And uh, D. became extremely uh, agitated. Uh, D. told her mother uh, that this intersection was a dangerous place. Now, mind you, from what I've seen, D. Clipper was probably around five years old at the time, maybe even, it looks like four. Um, I'll get to uh, how we figured that out in a second. So she was probably about three to four years old. And so what's a three to four year old saying, this is a dangerous place, a dangerous intersection. Cece later uh, told uh, another uh, relative about this incident. Uh, The relative told her, Cece, that her grandmother uh, named Ocelia Davidson was nearly killed in a car accident at that same place. 17 years earlier. Whoa. Well, hold on. Yeah, this gets a little more interesting. Uh, It it couldn't have been possible for 
the daughter Dee to know about this because uh, Ocelia Davidson had passed in 1966, seven years before she was born, before Dee was born. So Cece became convinced that her daughter Dee was a reincarnation of Ocelia Davidson. It gets a little deeper than that. I mean, that's kind of crazy as is. Cece, the mother, uh, noticed that Dee started acting like Ocelia as well. And one day when they were at the grocery store, Dee, the daughter, began talking with an older woman. She told uh, Cece that the woman was an old friend of hers. Cece learned that she had been a close friend and neighbor of Ocelia's for over 30 years. Two months later, when Cece and Dee were at a restaurant, Dee called an older waitress by her first name, Helen. It was impossible for her to know that. However, Ocelia was a regular at the restaurant and knew Helen well. Uh, Dee is, at, at, at the time of the writing of this, is an adult, so she'd probably be in the range of about 47, 48-ish. And, and she has no memories of Ocelia. She was born seven years later. Uh, however, uh, Cece is certain that Dee is the reincarnation of Ocelia Davidson. And uh, this episode uh, originally aired on July 16th of 2001. So there's your very bizarre case to start off our festivities. Okay. Well, I've got one. This is from the uh, May 22nd, 1998 episode. It's called Chair of Death. And what happened? What ha- happened was Thomas Busby, a striper with the uh, British forces, was tried and convicted in 1702 for the murder of his father-in-law, who he supposedly strangled for sitting in his favorite chair after an argument about his wife or the father-in-law's daughter. Now, on his way to the gallows, he wanted to stop at his favorite bar, sit in his favorite chair, and have himself a pint. Which, you know, is normal. As soon as he was done, and before they took him to the gallows, he said, and now I'm quoting, may sudden death come to anyone who dares sit in my chair. Now, fast forward a couple centuries, we're up to the 1940s, World War II, airmen from a base decided to... uh, go to the pub and have a seat in the chair and while driving back they crashed into a tree and died. Then a few years later, two bricklayers decided to try it. That afternoon, the one who sat in it fell and died. Apparently it's killed, it has literally killed everyone who sat in it. No matter what, there's always been some sort of freaky instance in which somebody sits in the chair and then soon after they die. It's almost like Final Destination if you think about it. So eventually, and the weirdest one was a cleaning woman stumbled into it while she was mopping. She was killed by a brain tumor. So eventually, the owner moved into the basement, hoping nobody would sit in it, and then one day, a delivery man was in the basement, sat in it, an hour later, he crashed his truck and died. 
So the landlord asked the local museum to take it, and they hung it. They hung the chair five feet from the ground, so nobody would be able to sit in it. And the local museum is where it sits. Sits. It's where it sits to this day, hanging on a wall five feet off the ground, so nobody can sit in it. Apparently, the chair's killing days are over. Okay, you know, my dad for years, and we're talking like 35, 40 years, he's had his own recliner, and he said, if you sit in my recliner, I'm going to kill you. But damn, that takes it literally. Yeah. Wow. Mm, That's something else. Oh, yeah. That is a whole lot of something else. My first segment is going to be on the Taos Hum from Season 7, Episode 20, originally aired May 19, 1995. Across the world, thousands of people report hearing an odd hum, a sonic phenomenon that only they can hear. So this covers three different people, Sarah Allen, Renona Whithead, and Hal Renero. Sarah Allen has reported that the sound does not change, even if she moves around to different places. Renona Whithead claims that it sounds like the air is sizzling, and Hal Renero claims that it sounds like a diesel engine running, causing ear pain. Hal claimed that he started hearing the hum after he moved to a small lakeside town outside of Detroit. At first, he assumed that it was just a motor sound. However, the longer the sound continued, the more it caused him to lose focus. He checked the local airport, the ventilation systems of a university, and other places where he believed the sound may be coming from. However, he could not determine the origin of the hum. So a few people suggested to Hal that the hum was coming from electrical fields in the area. They suggested that he go to an underground copper mine to see if he could still hear the hum from down there. And within a few minutes, he confirmed that he could still hear the hum. Surprisingly, he said it was even worse underground. Sarah Allen, a radio broadcast engineer, claims to have started the hearing the hum in 1982 after she was dispatched to repair a transmitter. She was able to play a digital recording of what the hum sounds like to her. She lives in Taos, New Mexico, which is where the hum is most often heard from, and some believe the sound originates from the town. The digital recording was played for Renota Whithead, who lives in nearby Santa Fe. She said that the recording was very close to what she often hears. She has been hearing the sound since 1990, but it has completely disrupted her life. She is currently on disability from her work at the National Park Service. Hundreds of people who hear the mysterious hum are now part of a support group. They believe the hum may be caused by a radio system known as ELF, or extremely low frequency. The Navy created this to communicate with the nation's submarine fleet. While underwater, submarine cannot receive standard radio waves. However, low-frequency signals are capable of penetrating through hundreds of feet of water to reach vessels on the ocean floor. The system has been in use since the late 1980s. It was first heard in Great Britain in 1970. Since then, it has been heard in Canada, France, Germany, Austria, South Africa, China, Australia, and New Zealand. And it continues to confuse and annoy those who hear it. So the mysterious humming sound has baffled doctors and scientists. They got an ear, nose, and throat doctor brought in by Unsolved Mysteries to meet with how to determine if the hum was due to any specific hearing problem he had. And although he was found to be suffering from hearing loss, they found nothing that could explain why he's hearing the bizarre hum. And they sent a team of scientists to Taos, New Mexico, to find the source of the hum. And they brought sound and radiation sensing equipment 
but they could not find anything unusual in the town. That's bizarre. Really? Especially I mean, when you're talking about the, the, the very low frequency uh, waves or whatnot. Taos, New Mexico is nowhere near water. That's, that's bizarre. I wonder if it's still happening now, because uh, obviously that episode was well over 20 years ago. There is a Wikipedia page on the, uh, on the hum, by the way. So, interesting. I don't think I can top that. That's interesting. I don't think so either. But I'm going to try. I'm going to talk about the Oakville Blobs. Now, it's not a baseball team or anything like that. You'll, you'll, you'll catch uh, how weird this is in a moment. Uh, this uh, was on the episode which first aired on May 9th of 1997. On August 7th of 1994, in Oakville, Washington, uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning, rain began to fall, and the, the rain covered about a 20-square-mile area. Uh, the rain isn't uh, necessarily uncommon in that area if you've ever been to Washington State. Uh, but uh, residents noted that uh, it wasn't water that was raining. It was a strange gelatinous substance that they hadn't seen before. And this didn't just happen on August 7th of 94. Uh, over a three-week period, this gel, the, the substance fell in, in a rainstorm a total of six times. Uh, at the time it first began, uh, one of the police officers was on patrol uh, with a civilian friend. And when he turned on his windshield wipers, uh, it's smeared against the windshield instead of washing off. So, I mean, if you've ever obviously had any sort of creature, a bug smash into your windshield and you try wiping it off, you know how much of a mess that is. The obscured windshield forced uh, the officer to pull into a gas station and try to quick clean it manually after donning a pair of latex gloves for safety. He described it as being very mushy, almost like if you had jello in your hand. Uh, another lo local resident stepped outside after it stopped and noticed it was everywhere. At first, it looked like hailstones, but after touching it, she noticed it had that same odd gelatinous feeling. By the afternoon of that day, many uh, people uh, both the officer, the, the local resident that uh, took a look at this, and other residents uh, had become mysteriously and violently ill. They described having difficulty breathing, vertigo, blurred vision, and nausea. Uh, another resident said that everyone in town contracted a flu-like illness that lasted two to three months. Additionally, several cats and dogs that came into contact with the substance fell ill and died. Oh. Oh, yeah. my. An hour after first noticing her symptoms, one of the residents was found sprawled on her bathroom floor, conscious but very weak. Her daughter described her as feeling cold and sweat-drenched and looking pale. She was moved to the hospital where she stayed for three days and was diagnosed with a severe inner ear infection. As she was being moved to the hospital, uh, the uh, patient remembered the odd rain and thinking there might be a connection to another resident's illness. So she collected a sample and sent to the hospital. Uh, a lab tech examined it and found that it contained human white blood cells 
but couldn't identify what it was or how it came from the sky. This sample was uh, sent to the uh, Washington State Department of Health for further study. Uh, a microbiologist there noted it was teeming with two species of bacteria, one of which lives in the human digestive system. Okay, this is getting really creepy now. Now we've got white blood cells and a bacteria that's found in the human digestive system. This is... Uh, this is, a, is this that is H. It doesn't say, but yeah, this is a definite WTF thing going on here. Based on the microbiologist's findings, it was initially speculated to be human waste from an airplane. But FAA regulations require that to be dyed blue, while the uh, blobs were perfectly clear. Furthermore, regulations forbid pilots from releasing this blue ice in uh, mid-flight. Nearly a year after... One of the residents fell ill. She mailed a sample she had stored in her freezer to a private research laboratory. While analyzing it, uh, a microbiologist at this uh, research laboratory believed he saw a, a eukaryotic cell, complex nucleus containing cells that are present in most living creatures. This means that it is or had been alive. One theory as to the origins was that the military's Naval bombing runs at sea had accidentally destroyed a school of jellyfish and sent their pieces flying into the atmosphere, where they settled in Oakville, 50 miles inland. The distance the parts would have traveled, the number of times it fell, and the lack of any rotting smell in it put this theory in doubt to most of its residents. While the Air Force confirms they were doing practice bombing runs over the Pacific Ocean in August 1994, they deny knowledge of the substance or any involvement in creating or dispersing it. Oakville residents are skeptical of this. Prior to it, many noticed a significant, almost daily amount of slow-moving military aircraft in the skies above. Some believe Oakville was the site of a military experiment designed to test a new biological weapon or to test the possible damage a biological attack on U.S. soil could do. No samples of the substance exist today. How about that? I mean, I know we're not trying to uh, to one up each other, but yeah, yeah, we're not we're not trying to one up each other. But I think I might have you beat here. Okay, let me tell you, because uh, I'm a medical professional, I like the medical stories, and one of my favorites is the story of Dr. Cynthia Watson. She is a board certified family medicine. A provider and a nationally recognized practitioner and lecturer in the field of integrative medicine. Still is, by the way. And she is known for incorporating conventional medicine with herbal medicine, homeopathy, natural hormone therapy, and nutrition. And her treatment approach is very holistic. It, it focuses on wellness and the preventative ways to achieve greater vitality and extend the quality of life. She's on this show because she is an expert on aphrodisiacs. Thank you. Uh, she's been studying uh, aphrodisiacs and their history for quite some time. And one of the traditions that she ended up studying was European newlyweds would drink wine mixed with honey every night to help give them the energy for uh, relations. Waka waka wah, waka waka wah. <laughs> 
There's not enough sex on this show. Anyway, the Puritans also had their own... Yeah, the Puritans... Oh, the Puritans of all people! They had their very own aphrodisiac, the dandelion weed, filled with vitamin A. And, of course, you all know about the viral powers of oysters. I, I do not want to picture what it would be like for the Puritans to have sex. Vitamin A, am I right? But yeah, uh, one of her, one of her, uh, sort, one of her patients, a person that we're going to call Charlie, visited Doctor Watson, complaining about a lack of sleep after eighteen-hour workdays. Been there. She asked him about his sex life, and he said that it was negatively affected. She prescribed him a regimen of herbs and vitamins. While at the office, he tried chocolates filled with herbs and spices. He later brought the chocolates home because, hey, they're in the waiting room, their community property. He ate them with his girlfriend, and later that night, they uh, had the relations. Oh, that's an episode of Sick sent me to the ER waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. He believes that the aphrodisiac chocolates helped them. Let's just say Viagra. Chocolate flavor. Am I right? Oh, jeez. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Our next uh, segment comes from the October 30th, 1991 episode, season four, episode seven on the St. James Hotel in New Mexico. In 1985, Ed Sitzberger and his wife Patricia bought the St. James Hotel in Cimarron, New Mexico, hoping to restore it. During one rainy night, Patricia and a friend went around to see how many leaks there were in the hotel. When they were done, they turned the chandelier off and left. And as they were in the parking lot, Patricia turned around and saw that the chandelier was turned on again. They went inside and turned the chandelier off. But when they got back outside, the chandelier was on once again. Patricia then went inside and told the spirits, I don't know who you are, but I don't want to play anymore, and I want to go home. And the next time they went outside, the chandelier was off. The Sitzbergers claim that the entire hotel is haunted. Guests in room 17 of the hotel report that whenever the window is left open, there is a mysterious fast-paced tapping noise that continues until they close the window. In the kitchen, oh, and this is the best part. In the kitchen, the cook witnessed several bizarre occurrences. For example, a glass levitating in the air off the side of a table. And in May of 1988, Charlie Valera, in May of 1988, Charlie Valera, a local high school student, was cleaning the bar at 5 a.m. when he saw a little kid spinning a glass on the bar. As Charlie moved closer to the bar, the child turned around and his face was glowing blue. The child then jumped off the bar and disappeared. And this spooked, it spooked the kid so much, he's like, I don't want to work in this hotel anymore. Oh, and it's hilarious. The blue, the blue lighting on the kid as he turns around is just... Just such great stuff. Amateur ghost hunter Dr. Kenneth Wright and Patricia both saw a strange glowing ball in one of the rooms while he was investigating. Oh, and this is a great this is a great segment of the reenactment because when they go into the room to see the white ball, 
it's like the most crudest special effect you can imagine. I don't know if it was like a practical effect or early bad CGI, but my God, was it was it horrible to see? It was amazing. A psychic Jackie Little John also investigated the hotel. The owners of the hotel are certain that the ghosts of the Old West haunt their hotel. The hotel was built in 1880 and offered good food, attractive dancing girls, and comfortable beds for guests such as Jesse James, Bat Masterson, Annie Oakley, Doc Holliday, and Wider. Ed Sitzberger contacted psychic Jackie Littlejohn to investigate the hotel. Jackie claims to communicate with the spirit world. Jackie sensed a gunshot wound, and the evidence of violence in the hotel was very strong. She visioned a poker game that turned deadly. She believes that one of the men killed in the poker game now haunts room 18 of the hotel. She says his name was TJ Wright, and he won the hotel at the poker game just before he died. Ed found that in 1881, a man named TJ Wright had, in fact, checked into the hotel three times. Mm. Yeah. I seem to remember this. But also, this isn't the only case of a hotel being haunted like that with a uh, haunted room. Uh, I seem to remember an episode where a similar situation happened, obviously not Old West, because this wasn't the, uh, in the West, uh, in Michigan. Creepy. And I should note that from Wikipedia, Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, in January of 2009, the hotel was purchased by the Express UU Bar Ranch, a property of Express Ranches headquartered in Yukon, Oklahoma. Following extensive renovations where the formal dining room and bar were merged into one large area and the outside deck and the lawn became a walled-in courtyard and patio complete with a fountain, the hotel was reopened on June 22, 2009. Hmm. So, man, you know, maybe we should go to this hotel one day and check it out. You go. I'm staying in the car and I'm leaving the engine running. Me too. Yeah. Well, now we're getting to the uh, stories that sort of inspired us to do this episode to begin with. Um, I'm not going to say what's coming up uh, from their ends, but uh, taking a look at what they've uh, told me they're going to cover that was like the real genesis of this episode, as are the next two uh, items I'm going to mention. The first one has to do with a gentleman named Danon or Danian Brinkley. Oh, this is great. Oh, Here we go. D-A- yeah, D-A-N-N-I-O-N. I, I think it's Danon or maybe Danian. I don't Danian. know. Danian. Danian Brinkley. Okay. So go back to 19... 19- 75. It was an amazing year. It was a great year. Personally, it was a great year for me. I can't speak for you two. This episode was actually featured on October 21st of 1994. Now, uh, Daniel Brinkley lives in Aiken, South Carolina. I know where that is. Okay. And uh, on September 17th of 1975, uh, Mr. Brinkley, who was 25 years old at the time, was on the phone with his friend Tom and while on the phone he was struck by lightning and literally shot across the room and I know when Greg saw this the special effects made him laugh out loud oh I I, I cried laughing for like 10 minutes when I saw that it, it was 
Yeah. If that's how lightning strikes are in real life, it's the most comedic way to go or will not necessarily go as you're going to find out. Over 180,000 volts of electricity was shot through his body. Within seconds, he saw his wife, Sandy, trying to resuscitate him. He also saw his friend Tom arrive and try to help. He realized that he was actually floating above himself watching these events unfold. During this time, he was clinically dead. He soon embarked on a near-death experience. He walked down a tunnel and saw a form come out of a misty blue cloud. He then began to experience everything that had happened to him during his life. So he's literally like seeing his life before his eyes. He also was put in the place of every person he had encountered. He admits that during his childhood and young adult life, he was self-centered, mean, and a bully. During his experience, he was confronted by all the people he had victimized over the years. He felt everything that, that they had gone through. Meanwhile, Daniel was rushed by ambulance to the hospital. In the emergency room, his breathing faltered and then stopped. Minutes later, his friend Tom was told that he was dead. Tom had difficulty accepting this. He went to the room where Daniel's body was placed. Suddenly, he saw the sheet over the body moving. Daniel said that at that point, he went from a spiritual place back to the physical world. Miraculously, he returned to life after being declared dead for 20 minutes. Daniel, however, was still in a grave condition. A week later, he was released but unable to walk or talk. His eyes were so light-sensitive that he had to wear welder's glasses at the time. For seven months, he remained partially paralyzed. It would take him another two years for him to learn how to walk and eat again. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. When he was finally able to describe his near-death experience, he recalled being in a cathedral, a place of learning, with 13 beings. The beings approached him one at a time, showing him a box. Oh, suddenly we were playing dealer or no deal, it looks like. Inside each box was an image of an event that would happen in the future. Altogether, he claimed to have witnessed 113 future occurrences, including the election of Ronald Reagan, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the Gulf War in 1991. He shared his visions with several of his friends who verified that these predictions were made prior to the events unfolding. Daniel is convinced that his near-death experience brought about his psychic abilities. A year after the accident, he attended a lecture by Dr. Raymond Moody, who has studied near-death experiences. Moody has worked with him for several years since. He claims that in 1976, Daniel told him that the Soviet Union would fall in 1990. In the years since his experience, Daniel has used his psychic abilities to help others. One of his abilities is helping police investigators solve crimes. Daniel was able to help solve the 1993 murders of a Montana couple, John and Nancy Bosco. He accurately described the murderer who was identified as Shadow Clark. In order to verify his psychic powers, Dr. William Roll observed Daniel in a series of tests. He gave readings for eight people that he had never met before. He picked out certain details about the people that he would not have known. Dr. Roll was convinced that he was legitimate. Today, Daniel spends most of his time volunteering at hospices and nursing homes throughout the country. He believes that his experience has allowed him to be qualified to counsel others. Daniel, who was once a bully as a child, has completely changed his life to help people. 
all because of the lightning strike and his new psychic ability. And looks like he's still alive. He would be about 71 years old now. Mm. That's old. So he got his psychic powers from a, a lightning strike during a phone call. That's weird. It's very bizarre. It is weird. But it's not but it's not weirder than getting a letter from somebody who knows something about you and you don't know anything about the letter writer. Mike, you know where Circle you know where Circleville, Ohio is. Right? What if I said I didn't? Um, then I wouldn't hold it against you. It's a really small town, really small. It's, 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 it's like near Columbus, but not necessarily, it's in the middle of nowhere, basically. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now. It's basically Letterkenny in Ohio. Yeah. It looks like it's about maybe 25 to 30 miles south of Columbus. Well, this particular case, it begins with the letter that was sent to Unsolved Mysteries. It says, forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you L sickos will pay the Circleville writer. And that's how it began. But it actually began in 1976 when bus driver Mary Gillespie was accused of a supposedly non-existent affair with the superintendent of schools. She's, she got a letter that said, Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been oh, over or sir, ob- observing. Very hard handwriting, by the way. Your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. Mike? get out of the house. Anyway, the writer left uh, It left a Columbus, Ohio postmark, but no return address. Within eight days, Mary received a similar letter. She kept the letters to herself. However, her husband received one as well, and it said, Defender, you are also a pig... Making inform the school board something on CBS posters, sign billboards, only pigs ride motorcycles. He basically said if Ron did not stop the wife's affair, his life would be in danger. After two weeks, the writer threatened to go public with the affair allegations, broadcasting it on TV, CBS, oh, not CBS, CBS. At Mary and Ron only told three people about the letters, Ron's sister, her husband, Paul Freshour, and, Paul, and Paul's sister. Mary had some ideas who might be sending the letters. They decided to have Paul write letters to the suspect, claiming they know who he or she was. The plan seemed to work. The letters stopped for several weeks. That changed on August 19, 1977, when Ron received a phone call from the alleged writer which seemed to confirm Ron's suspicions on the identity of the writer. He grabbed his gun and then left in his pickup truck, even though the writer claimed to be watching the truck. A few minutes later, Ron was found dead in his pickup truck, crashed into a tree. 
Investigators later learned that Ron had fired at least one shot from his gun before crashing. Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe questioned and eliminated at least one suspect in the case before ruling Ron's death an accident, claiming he lost control and crashed while driving drunk. Several residents soon received letters saying that Sheriff Radcliffe had been involved in a cover-up. According, according to Paul, Sheriff Radcliffe initially agreed that the death was the result of foul play. However, he changed his mind allegedly when the suspect passed the polygraph test. Ron's blood alcohol level was 0.16, twice the legal limit. However, many of Ron's friends and family were surprised by this because they didn't think he was a heavy drinker. Mary and the superintendent later acknowledged the relationship, although they claim it did not start until after the letters were sent. In February of 1983, Mary was harassed along her bus route. The letter writer apparently began placing threatening signs next to the road. One day, Mary had enough and decided to go and rip the sign down, and when she did, she discovered a booby trap designed to kill her. Trap had a box which contained a small pistol. Mary had pulled the sign off a certain way. The gun would have fired. An amateurist attempt to made, was made to rub off the serial number on the gun, but when lab tests were able to raise the number, it was determined that the gun had belonged to Paul Freshour, who had recently separated from Ron's sister. Paul, however, claimed the gun had been stolen. On February 25, 1983, Sheriff Radcliffe asked Paul to meet with him and take a handwriting test. Sheriff Radcliffe also had him write the letters while repeating them verbally. Paul took Sheriff Radcliffe to his garage and showed him where he kept his gun. Afterwards, the two returned to the courthouse where Paul was arrested and charged with attempted murder. He did go on trial, and although he was never charged with writing the threatening letters, they became a crucial part of the evidence against him. Handwriting expert testified that Paul was the letter writer. Mary also testified that she believed he was the writer after his wife visited her with the same suspicion. Proclaiming his innocence, he was convicted and given a 7 to 24 year sentence. And while there, he received letters from the writer determined to keep him there. So I, I, have, I have this letter right here. Fresh hour. Now when are you going to believe you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago when we set them up. They say, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? No one wants you out. No one. The joke is on you. Ha ha. Tell no one of this letter. I saw the paper. Great news. Great. The sheriff loved it. Ha ha. Others also received letters postmarked from Columbus, even though he was in prison in Lima. Even though he was in solitary confinement, letters kept arriving. In December of 1990, Paul became eligible for parole. He was denied the parole due to the letters. And in 1994, Paul was finally paroled, and he continues to maintain his innocence. However, the authors of the letters was never revealed. Now, uh, a journalist has investigated the story and found another possible suspect that could be the writer. Another bus driver on Mary's route had seen a suspicious man standing next to a yellow El Camino. The man was at the same spot where the trap was later to be found, and the possible suspect's brother owned that same type of car. However, the description does not match Paul, and he has a solid alibi at this specific time. The identity of the writer was never revealed. 
However, recent information suggested that there were at least three letter writers involved in the case, none of whom were Paul. One was believed to be the son of the superintendent whom Mary had an affair with. The second was believed to be a co-worker who was infatuated with Mary. And the third was believed to be Ron's sister. It's believed that the ex-wife's boyfriend was the man seen next to the El Camino on the day the booby trap was discovered. One of, the, one of her relatives had owned that type of car at the time, and despite the evidence, the police still maintain that Paul was the Circleville writer. If this sounds familiar and you're a fan of drunk history, that's why. And Paul Freshhauer, by the way, perished in 2012 who, after maintaining a blog for, about the subject for several years. He never found out the identity of the, the Circleville writer. That wow. is creepy. Wow. That is some creepy-ass shit. Well, you know what else is some creepy-ass shit? What else is some creepy-ass shit? Spontaneous combustion. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. So, so this is a segment from the episode that aired March 14th, nineteen. 19- 97 season 9 episode 14 so this covers three cases of spontaneous combustion and this is this is this was such a memorable segment that even vice did an article about this segment of unsolved mysteries because this scared the hell out of so many people we first meet kay fletcher the wife of mike fletcher Just after 9 a.m. on the morning of February 11th, 1996, she notices a puff of smoke from her sweater and pulled it off thinking it was on fire. Mike checked her back, but despite being a little red, there was no apparent cause for the smoke. He noticed that there was a smell of burned human flesh. They now believe she was the victim of spontaneous human combustion. So in the reenactment, you see steam coming off the sweater of Kay Fletcher, and she takes it off and her shirt. sexy she said they looked through the clothing and they found no discoloration or any fire damage the smoke they said was so thick they had to open a window the next case we have is george mott george mott was a retired fireman that suffered from lung problems and required an air mask and a pump to breathe on March 26, 1986, his son Kendall visited him after he had not answered repeated phone calls. Kendall found all the windows browned and the interior smoked. Inside his bedroom, he found what was left of George. His remains consisted of ash, a few splinters of bone, and a fragment of his skull. The very localized damage suggested that he had died from spontaneous combustion, a situation that has yet to be explained. The damage to his body was similar to that of what is done at a crematorium. So yeah, they, the, uh, one of the experts said that the burning could only be replicated in a crematorium operating at 3000 degrees Fahrenheit or more for over 12 hours. The searing heat had melted a television in the room. However, much of the bedding was unscathed. Just a few feet from the bed, a box of wooden matches failed to ignite Air was still pumping from George's air mass, and despite this, Samptis believed that there was a rational explanation for his death. Joe Nickel noted that George was a former drinker and smoker. He believes that he was depressed and decided to smoke a cigar or cigarette. If he dropped it on himself, it could have caused him to accidentally set himself on fire. Well, that would actually make sense. Yes. But here we go. Here We have one more in this segment. 
the case of Irving Bentley. On December 5th, 1966, a gas company meter man named Don Gosnell went to the home of 92-year-old Irving Bentley, a retired physician. He went into the basement when he found a pile of ashes on the floor. There was a strange odor in the room. When he looked up, he discovered a hole in the basement ceiling. There were red embers around it. He went upstairs to the bathroom and discovered what was left of the remains of Irving, his metal walker, part of his head, and part of his leg in a boot. Everything else had turned to ash. Irving had apparently died of a fire hot enough to burn through the floor, but not potent enough to claim the whole house. It also was unable to melt his walker or blister paint on the nearby bathtub. To date, the cause of it has defied explanation. Skeptics believe that his pipe might have been the cause, as he had a history of setting his clothes on fire with it. He also had a habit of keeping matches in his bathrobe pockets. Many, however, believe that spontaneous human combustion is to blame. Some also believe that natural electric currents in the body could cause these fires. What do we, what do we think about these cases of spontaneous combustion? Hmm. Sounds like somebody's keeping a secret stash. Just get it? Secret stash? Yeah. But man, but man that, that lady with the clothes on fire, that is such a such an ama- that's such a hilariously bad reenactment. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> I've seen better reenactments on a thousand ways to die, being honest. Which, by the way, is not a future installment. Okay, now here we get to the now we're getting to the nitty gritty here. The the, yeah. the 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 creme de la creepy. Yeah, and I'll start it off with the story of one Mary Clamser. This episode aired on March twenty ninth of nineteen ninety six. This actually begins on August seventeenth of nineteen ninety four. For twenty three years, forty four year old Oklahoma City resident Mary Clamser has battled with multiple sclerosis a degenerative nerve disease. Mm -hmm. She was first diagnosed with the disease in 1972 when she was 19 and engaged to be married to Ron Clamser. As a result, she was unable to move or feel her legs. She was told that she would never be able to walk again or have children. Faced with a tragic future, Mary felt that she had to end her engagement with Ron because she didn't want to put him through that. However, Ron said that he would love her no matter what and that they would be married for better or for worse. Aww. Two weeks before the wedding, the disease relented enough for Mary to be able to walk down the aisle. However, the MS soon returned. Despite this, she wanted to live the best life possible with Ron. Over the next 10 years, she struggled through three difficult pregnancies, but she was still able to give birth to her two sons and daughter. Mary's family adjusted as best as they could to her MS. In the summer of 1992, however, the MS came back worse than before. Over a year later, the MS was still causing her great pain. Then, during a thunderstorm on August 17th of 1994, Mary stepped into a bathtub and was struck by lightning. What is it with me getting all the stories about people being struck by lightning? I don't know. I guess you live right. (laughs) Two straight stories involving a bathtub. And lightning. Is anybody going to mention the lightning? Yeah, I've had two straight stories of lightning. 
At least 10,000 volts of electricity went through her body. The force threw her across the room. And this actually may have even been funnier than the Daniel Brinkley uh, being thrown across the room we mentioned earlier. This one I actually found very funny. I apologize to, to Ms. Clamser if she happens to be listening. She survived the lightning strike and was sent to the emergency room. Amazingly, while the doctors were working on her, she began to feel them touching her legs. She was shocked as for 23 years, she could not feel her left leg and for two years could not feel her right leg. Miraculously, the lightning strike had put Mary's MS into remission. Although she was in pain for the next few weeks, she was happy that she could feel her legs. Then two weeks after the lightning strike, she was able to get up from her chair and walk across the room without any support. Within just a year, she was able to walk long distances again without any leg braces or support. She now exercises regularly and lives a completely normal life. No one has any idea how Mary's MS was cured through lightning, but she believes it, it was a miracle. Now, here's a, a side note. Listen to this. And this may actually be a callback to, to Danian that we talked about earlier, the psychic. Uh-huh. On April 19th of 1995, Mary canceled an appointment at the Oklahoma City Federal Building to do an interview about the miracle in Los Angeles. That was the day the Oklahoma City bombing happened. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, and then also, even more interesting, uh, Mary's MS later returned and she was again confined to a wheelchair. Amazingly, in 2005, she was outside when she was again struck by lightning. Once again, her MS went into remission, and she is able to walk again. Now she has a special room in her house for to protect her from any further lightning strikes. Uh, sadly, uh, Mary's husband, Ron, passed away in 2016, and their son, Christopher, has also since passed away. Oh. That's a sad story. That's sad. It's sad, but it's happy. But yeah, it, there's something about lightning strikes. You, you become psychic, or your MS goes away, and who who knows? Well, one thing that doesn't happen when you're struck by lightning is that you get rained on. But that would happen to a person named. Don Decker. On February 24th, 1983, this episode, by the way, aired in on February 10th, 1993, so approximately 10 years before this episode aired, a funeral was held in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, for a 63-year-old by the name of James Kishaw. His 21-year-old grandson, Don Decker, had been granted a furlough from the country, from the county jail to attend the funeral. He was serving four to ten months for receiving stolen property. What he had not told people is that James had physically abused him since he was seven. He felt that the evil in his life was finally gone. However, it apparently did not leave, but instead manifested that night. Don angered his parents' glorifying James decided to stay the night with his friends, Bob and Jeannie Keffer. While at their home, he had an uneasy, chilled feeling overcome him. Suddenly, water began to drip from the walls. 
and he fell, to, fell into an eerie translate state. After the water started dripping from the ceiling, the Keffers decided to notify their landlord, Ron Van Wy, and when he arrived, he was surprised at the amount of water coming out of nowhere. At first, they thought it was a plumbing problem until they realized that there was no pipes in the front end of the house. They also noticed that the water was not just falling downwards, it was also coming up from the floor and moving sideways. Ron called his wife, Lermaine, and the police. Officers John Bojan and Richard Walbert went to the home and were shocked by the amount of water coming from nowhere. They were also surprised when they saw it traveling horizontally. Even more strange was the phenomenon was occurring in the living room. It's coming from the house. It's coming from inside the house. So right after the rest of the Keffers went across the street to a restaurant, Ron and Romaine decided to stay behind, and the rain and mist completely disappeared. Felt that one of the people that was left was connected to the mysterious rain. 23 hours had now passed since it began. The Keppers and Don arrived at the restaurant, which was owned by Pam Scrafano, who had visited the home earlier and wishes the rain firsthand. Suddenly, rain started falling in the restaurant. Oh. Pam, Pam gave him a crucifix which started to burn him. She told him to contact the church to perform an exorcism. One, gave, one of the uh, officers returned to the home, gave him a crucifix, which burns his hand. The rain appeared, and he was thrown across the room again. The officers then noticed three claw marks on his neck with blood coming from them. The officers involved still can't explain what they saw. And finally, on the third night, Ron convinced an evangelical preacher to come and attempt an exorcism. Other priests and ministers had turned it down, but when the preacher began to pray... Dawn began to convulse violently. Those present seemed to notice a different feeling in the home. The rain, at the end of the prayer, the rain stopped and never appeared in the Keffer home again. But a few days later, Don was returned to jail to finish his sentence, and while he was back there, the rain materialized again. His cellmate was drenched in water. Two guards and a janitor reported seeing rain. Don felt like he could not control it. One guard told him to make it rain in the warden's office, and just moments later, water appeared on the warden's shirt. So, a reverend was sent to the jail to meet with Don. A smell of death came through the room, and he witnessed the rain appear in the area as well. It did so at Don's command. The reverend opened his Bible, and it did not get wet. He prayed for him, and the rain stopped. The reverend also performed a ceremony on him. Eventually, as mysteriously as the rain began, it stopped. It has not occurred since but Don and the various witnesses still do not have an explanation for it. However, he believes that it has something to do with James's abuse. By the way, James reportedly abused Don as a child. Paranormal investigators believe that it was genuine. Unfortunately, this case remains unresolved. Don was arrested and charged with arson in 2012. And although the incident was unrelated to the 83 happenings, the new arrest makes him appear less credible. One researcher notes that the incident in the Keffer home may be the result of ice damming on the attic and roof and believes that the melted ice may have entered the home, causing strange phenomena. 
Although many con are convinced that the incident was a hoax, others are certain that an unknown supernatural force was behind it. One of the things you got to remember, it wasn't just in the house. It wasn't just in the house. It was in the jail, it was in the restaurant, and it was on a warden's shirt. So you tell me. All right. Here we go, folks. Last but not least. Last but oh, this one's the big one. Oh, the big one. Now I first I first heard about this this case from an unsolved mysteries podcast called Perhaps It's You. And I I I listened to it and I thought, this is so nuts, I gotta watch it for myself. And it's and it's just like the most unbelievable hilariously bad thing I've ever seen in my life. This is the segment about the magic rock originally aired on November 23rd, 1988 season one, episode nine on Saturday, May 14th, 1988, 13 year old Jamie Parks and his friend Trevor Johnson went into the woods in Washington state near the Canadian border and found a bizarre rock with strange cryptic alien-like drawings on it. Trevor told his parents, Steve and Patty, about their discovery. At the time, the Johnsons were struggling to pay the bills and risking everything on a small dress shop that was opening in a new mall. Patty took a second job as a receptionist to pay for their rent, while Steve worked as a prison corrections officer. She later quit her job to open the store. However, this backfired when construction on the dress shop fell behind. After learning of the rock, Steve hiked to the spot with Trevor and was also interested in it. Now get ready, folks. Two days later, the Johnson's luck began to change for the better when their dress shop was completed and began to flourish. And also, at the same time, Steve took a job working at a movie theater within the mall. And you're not going to believe this, folks. After less than a month of working in the, in the movie theater in the mall, this one-screen movie theater where they're playing... Willow. I loved that movie. Yeah. The mall management was so impressed with the job Steve did that in one month, they said, we're going to let you buy the theater outright at a very low cost. How does that happen, folks? How do you buy a one-screen movie theater? It's 1988. Who knows? One-screen movie theaters were all over the place. Yeah, this is around the time multiplexes became a thing. But yeah, I mean, I remember even in 1988 going to one-screen theaters. And you're not going to believe this, folks, but also they opened another store in the mall, a candy store. And guess what happened, guys? What happened? That store was a success, too. How else do you explain all the success? What do you think? Location, location, location. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Location and maybe a good sense of business acumen, maybe? I don't know. Hmm. Well, also, they were able to acquire a new home, and they finally attained property that eluded them for years. And guess what, guys? They were able to get the house rent-free. What? For four years. That you know, All this success... That can only be explained to one thing. They looked at the magic rock and the magic rock decided, you know what? You know what? Steve what? Johnson, you need to have 
a lot of success. You need to you need to be successful this fresh up. You're gonna op- you're gonna end up buying a movie theater for very cheap. You're gonna open another candy shop in the mall for great success. <laughs> and then you're gonna get a house, a new house from all the success, rent free. <laughs> they believe that their turnaround was due to finding the rock. However, an archaeologist disagrees. After the archaeologist studied it, he determined the markings were not made by American Indians as commonly believed, and that they date to the 20th century at its earliest. Whatever the origin of the rock, the Johnsons have been grateful to Trevor and Jamie Parks for finding it while exploring. So you know what, guys? I think we need to to take a visit to Washington State and try to find this magic rock. Who knows what powers this rock has? Do you know where this rock is? Well, it's in, it's somewhere near, well, it says Washington State near the Canadian border in the woods and try to find this rock. Okay. <laughs> well, thank, well, come on, guys. Wouldn't you like to be rich just by looking at like a rock? I would like to, by, by, by just looking at a rock? Yeah. Yes, I would. Yes. And who know, And who knows what this power can do? We don't know that we don't know the extent of this power. And what has happened in the thirty plus years with the Johnson since the magic rock? It's like who knows who could have gotten rich with this magic rock? Maybe they, maybe they showed it to Jeff Bezos and maybe that's why he's so rich. Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah, it's possible. This magic rock. I think this is probably the greatest. This this is the greatest segment. I think of it. My favorite personal se- favorite segments in the history of unsolved mysteries. Just unbelievable. Well, I think that's just about it for this uh, installment. Yeah. Who, who and and who and who knows what could come down the line now that uh, unsolved mysteries seems to be a success on Netflix. I mean, you have America's Most Wanted, a bit of Fantasy Island, a bit of Mysteries of the Unknown. You put it all together, and uh, it was a thing on TV. And it still is a thing on TV. And, well, we can't necessarily call this legendary, but we have a pretty darn good website, if you ask me, and and my biased opinion. And that's at itwasthingontv.com. And you'll find all our back episodes there. We've got almost 80 episodes at this point. Uh, plenty of material to cover. And uh, don't forget the socials. We're on Facebook. We're on Tumblr, kind of, sort of. We're on Instagram as well. And, uh, of course, we're always on Jack Dorsey's Hate Box. And don't mm-hmm. forget, we have a Discord. Link is available on our website. Yeah, and also don't forget, like and subscribe, rate and review, and share with your friends because... Sharing is caring. And uh, coming up later on this week, it's actually our first viewer request show. Uh, One of our listeners requested we cover a certain show maybe back in like May or April. and, And I said, good idea. We'll do that. Let me see what type of slot we have available and we'll try to get it in there as soon as possible. Lo and behold, that day's come. We're not going to give away any spoilers as to what that show is about, so you'll just have to listen. But uh, that's it for now. Anybody have any idea how to close the show? Oh, I know how we're going to close this. How are we going to close this? Uh, I'll do the row, and then we'll have Robert Stack do the the closing 
from the uh, end of every Unsolved Mysteries episode. Oh, well, there you go. There's one more mystery that's solved. Thanks a lot, everybody. See you Thursday. Wow! For every mystery, there is someone somewhere who knows the truth. Perhaps that someone is watching. Perhaps it's you. You see, that was the joke is the, the unsolved mystery is how we're going to end the show and Craig solved the mystery. <laughs> I, was like, I, knew, I was like, I knew we were trying to uh, incorporate that. I just didn't know how. <laughs>